So, uh, well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new or visiting with us or, you know, listening online for the first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you as well. Uh, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, today we're, we're kind of in the second week of a two-week sub-series uh, as we've kind of been working our way through 1 Corinthians. When we hit chapter 11, we came across the topic of women's roles in the church there at Corinth. And so we wanted to take two weeks to kind of dig into that a little more deeply and talk a little more um, extensively about the roles of women just because it's such a, a, a topic that's debated and talked about so much in our day. And so uh, our text for today that we're going to be looking at is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 15. So if you want to pull up your Bible app or you can follow along as we put the verses on the screen. Well, you know, as someone who grew up in the 1960s, the culture in America today is vastly different from the one I grew up in. I mean, just think about the things that characterize our culture today that either didn't exist or were far different in those years. I mean, back then, there were no cell phones, no internet, no social media. I mean, if you got a tattoo, you were considered strange and unusual. No online dating, uh, no remote working, no texting. I mean, people actually wrote letters back then. Um, no smoking restrictions. And we could go on and on. But really, the pace of cultural change seems to be speeding up as each decade goes by. And really, the evolution of culture affects how we think, what we like, how we relate to others, things we think are right or wrong. And yet, in, in the midst of this cultural change and evolution, the Bible tells us that God is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that the Word of God stands forever as God's unchanging truth. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5.18 when he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying that until the heavens and the earth pass away, there will not be the least thing that will fall to the ground of what God says is truth in his word. And so as believers, we're called to stand in the truth that is in the Bible. And as a pastoral team, we want the truth contained in Scripture to shape and govern all that we do in faith and practice in the life of this church. And yet the reality is, the Bible was written into a cultural context of its own time. And some of the cultural expressions of how biblical truth is lived out in everyday life, they may change over time. We ran into that a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 11 when we were talking about head coverings. I mean, in that day in Corinth, head coverings were a symbol that you were married and that as a wife you were under, the, under submission, under the leadership of your husband. That's not something that really we relate to in our culture, in our day. 
So how do we separate what are the cultural aspects of what the Bible says that may change over time from the unchanging truth of God that scriptures contain? And really, there's probably no more controversial topic in the church in our day where these questions are relevant than the issue of women's roles in the church. And so last week, we began to kind of lay out our understanding of what God says about women's roles in marriage and in the church. And uh, I talked last week about the process we went through as a pastoral team to really dig in and evaluate this. And I'll just refer you back to that message if you want to understand that a little better. But basically, I said that there are two views, two main views in this area. Uh, One would be called the egalitarian view, which simply means that Uh, that people believe that women are equally and with men created in the image of God, equal in being, essence, worth, and significant, and that there are no distinctions in roles. They are equal in role, so that anything that a man can do, a woman can do as well. No distinctions of roles in marriage, and none in the church as well. And the other view would be what would be called a complementarian view. And that would say that while men and women are equally created in the image of God, equal in being and essence and value and significance, that when it comes to marriage and the home and the church, God has designed some distinctions in roles in the two. And so I said last week that as we studied this out, we would clearly hold to a complementarian view as a church. And so last week, I focused on laying some kind of biblical foundations and looking at roles in marriage. And today, I want to lay out some of the biblical reasons and evidence for why we would hold a complementarian view when it comes to women's roles in the church and really what exactly that means. And then spend some time talking about just some of the practical ways that is lived out in the life and ministry of this church. So before we dig into this, let's take a moment and pray for God's help. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we, we pray for wisdom, discernment. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, that we would, um, Lord, look at your word and understand all that you've intended for your church, not, not just in the days that the Bible was written, but in our day as well. And so we ask that your spirit would lead and guide me and all that I say and do in this time. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us eyes and hearts to hear and discern. Lord, that we might live in the good of what you have designed and provided in your word. And so we commit this to you and ask you to do it for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin with just talking a little bit about the importance of women in the Bible, because really the appropriate place to begin in looking at this is just with a brief survey, if you will, of the important role that women have played in God's purposes throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, last week we saw how men and women have both been equally made in God's image. And they are equal in being and dignity and significance and value, equally charged with ruling over and subduing God's creation on earth. And throughout the Bible, we see women playing really critical roles in God's purposes and the dignity and value that Scripture accords to them. 
Sarah is commended for her faith and courageous life as Abraham's wife. Rahab plays a crucial role in God's plan for Israel to defeat the city of Jericho when they enter the promised land. And both of these women are included in what is sometimes referred to as the Faith Heroes Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And in Judges, we see the leadership and wisdom of Deborah, who served as a judge over Israel. And as the Old Testament goes on, we see Hannah's faithful commitment to God that would lead to her son Samuel shaping the early history of Israel. We see the godly devotion of Ruth to both God and her family highlighted in the book that goes by her name. And we learn of Esther's leadership and faith that saved the people of God from literally being completely wiped out. And we see Abigail's godly counsel and wisdom to David that saved just dozens of lives uh, through her counsel. And these are just a few of the examples of key roles women played in God's purposes and plans in the Old Testament. And the story goes on, really, when we come to the New Testament. Jesus treated women with dignity and honor in a way that was completely countercultural for Jewish culture of that day. If you, you know, the, one of the best places to see this is just, just look at his interactions with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. I mean, even she was amazed at the compassion and grace with which he interacted with her in light of the relationship between Samaritan and Jews, and particularly women. But women traveled with Jesus and helped finance his ministry, and some of his closest friends were women in Mary and Martha. And when he rose from the dead, the first person he appeared to was a woman, Mary Magdalene. And she was entrusted to be the messenger of the greatest news of all time in Jesus' resurrection, which she was to take to the disciples. But Jesus treated women with kindness and compassion and of equal value as men in a culture that regularly did otherwise. And women were part of the group of disciples praying in the upper room after Jesus' crucifixion. When the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was poured out on both men and women. The gifts of the Spirit were distributed by God to both men and women equally. And women played critical roles in the gospel mission after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Lydia played a key part in the founding of the Philippian church. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were both credited with teaching a more accurate gospel to Apollos, who was a leader in the church. Junia's ministry to the churches made her well known to the apostles for her service. And women served alongside of Paul as his co-workers in the gospel mission, and at times served as his messengers to the churches. Women served on missionary teams, and Paul commends a number of women for their faithful labors in advancing the gospel mission. And women were to be valued and cared for well in the community of the church. And that's really why deacons were established in the church, to help care for and provide for some of the widows and women in the early church. And we could go on, but but I hope you get the picture. 
women have played an incredibly valuable and significant role in God's plans and purposes throughout the history of the Bible. And they are to play just as valuable and significant a role in the building of the church and the gospel mission today. Men and women are to be equal partners in the ministry of the church and the gospel mission as brothers and sisters in Christ. But equal partners doesn't necessarily mean there aren't some distinctions in roles. And so that brings me to the second thing I want to look at this morning, and that's the role of pastor elders and teaching. And that brings us to our text for today in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. And 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, really is at the center of the tornado of controversy regarding women's roles in the church. I mean, verses 11 and 12 in this text have probably received more attention than any other verses of Scripture in our day. There have been multitudes of books written, dozens and dozens of scholarly studies on these, and yet there is still significant disagreement over what Paul is saying in this passage. And I won't be able to cover all the details of the debate in our time today, but if you want to dig more deeply into this, I would refer you back to the book I mentioned last week that we used as a pastoral team. It's called Two Views on Women in Ministry. Uh, But let me try to walk through today just some of the key things that would help you see why we would hold the view that we do and what that view is. So, First, we want to consider just the context that these verses were written in. And so when we look at the context, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8, the beginning of our passage, all the way through the end of chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how things are to be ordered in the functioning of the church when it comes together. We can see that in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 at the end of this section where Paul says this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And included in this section of Scripture uh, is the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons. And so the context here is Paul giving instructions on how the, the church should be ordered and function when it comes together. So let's read the passage in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So in verses 8 through 10, Paul gives some instruction, if you will, for proper conduct when the church comes together. The men are to pray, in verse 8, lifting their hands without anger or quarreling. Now, not sure, perhaps there was some conflict between men that carried over into the church assembly at Ephesus. There was a lot of struggle with false teaching going on in this church. And, and maybe in the way people were praying, some of that false teaching was kind of coming out. And people were arguing and kind of fighting over this in some way. I mean, and I look at this and I think, you know, you think we have problems in the church today. Well, at least we're not fighting with each other in our prayer meetings yet. Um, but Paul is calling men to pray in unity and peace in the church gathering. And one little nugget that we don't want to miss in verse 8 is in the very beginning where he says, I desire that in every place. In other words, the idea here is while these instructions are relevant to the church at Ephesus, they are universally applicable to churches in general. And that'll be important as we walk through this argument a little bit. So then in verses 9 and 10, Paul is calling the women to godly behavior in the church assembly as well. He urges them to practice the inner qualities of godly character rather than seek to draw attention to themselves through an undue focus on their dress and appearance. In other words, it seems like for, for some of the women, church was beginning to be a little bit like a fashion show. And they were coming to church, they were dressed to the hilt, they were decked out, fancy hairdos, and it seemed like what was going on is they were more concerned about making an impression on others and drawing attention to themselves than they were in the real reasons why they would be coming there to worship. And, you know, that's not that unheard of in our day in certain segments of the Christian church, although it certainly wouldn't be the case here <laughs> in terms of dress. Um, but as Paul says this, he's, he's not prohibiting doing your hair or wearing nice clothes. He just doesn't want those things to become what church is all about rather than a heart and attitude of gracious godliness. Now, one of the things that I think we just want to note in these verses is in these verses, there are some cultural expressions that Paul is speaking to. So when the men are called to pray, the biblical principle that is universal is that men should pray in unity and peace. But the lifting of hands would be more of a cultural expression in that day of how they would do that when they were gathered together. And even with the women in verses 9 and 10, while the, the call for women to come and, and you know, exhibit a gracious, godly character and pursue good works, uh, that would be a universal biblical principle. Some of the things he's addressing, the braiding of hair and elaborate hairdos, would be a cultural kind of expression that he's seeking to speak to. And so we want to just keep in mind these kind of cultural dimensions of these verses as we go through this. 
So that brings us to verses 11 and 12, which is kind of the heart of the issue. And so let's just look at those two again. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So in verse 11, he says, women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. And there's, there's a real sense, I think, in which this could just as easily be said to the men if the submissiveness here is to the church leaders, which it seems to be. But perhaps there were some women in the church at Ephesus who were not doing this, uh, or at least some question or confusion as to the role women were to play in leading and teaching in the church. Perhaps women were seeking to teach and take authority in the church in some way that Paul feels like he needs to adjust and correct. Or maybe Paul is just simply seeking to clarify these things as part of his instructions to Timothy. Whichever it may be, verse 12 is his seeking to correct or put in order how these things should function in the church when it comes together. And there are a couple of theories that the, those on the egalitarian side of the argument would kind of put forth here as to exactly what the problem was that Paul is addressing. One of them is that, that, that there were women in the church who were teaching false doctrine in the church. Uh, you know, Timothy, his letter talks about false teachers. And so in this view, what Paul is seeking to stop them from doing is just stop them from teaching false doctrine. Um, now, why, is that, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if the problem is women teaching false doctrine, and that's what Paul's trying to correct, then it really doesn't speak at all to the role that a woman can play in the church in regard to authority. It doesn't really address that point. It's a completely different issue. But one of the problems, I think, with this particular view is there's just no clear evidence that this was the case. Because um, while Paul addresses the problem of false teaching in this church in chapter 1, the only false teachers identified in his letters to Timothy are men. And it also seems odd that if this was the case, that Paul would extend his restriction from teaching and exercising authority over men to all women and not just address the false teachers. And then the word teach that Paul uses in verse 12 is not the word Paul typically uses when he's talking about false teaching. This word is, is just the word that's just commonly used for teaching in a generic way that doesn't convey any negative sense. So this explanation of what was going on has, just has a number of problems that makes it difficult to accept. Another theory that is put forth is that the prohibition in verse 12 is because the Ephesian women were uneducated and thus not able to teach effectively. 
And again, why does this matter? Because if the problem is that women just didn't have the education in that context to teach effectively, then that's just an indication of their being disadvantaged in a male-dominated culture. And again, doesn't speak to the question of roles in the church at all. But this just doesn't seem to hold water either, to be honest, because historical evidence would show that there were all classes of people in the church at Ephesus. And many of them, women of a sufficient class, that they were likely well-educated. And really, the adornment described in verse 10 of jewelry and extravagant hairdos was more associated with women of means who were far more likely to be well-educated than not. So I think we can probably discard those theories as just not having the evidence to be persuasive. So then verse 12 seems to be Paul addressing an issue of women teaching and seeking to exercise authority over men in a way that Paul felt was inappropriate in the context of the church assembly. So he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And the words, I do not permit, they're they're strong words. So this is not Paul just expressing his opinion on something, but he is speaking from his apostolic authority when he says these words. And so the crux of understanding what he is saying here really comes down to how we understand these two Greek words, teach, and the second one, exercise authority over, because exercise authority over is one word in the Greek. So it's how we understand these two words and also how these two words are related to one another in this verse. Now, the word teach is the word didasko in Greek, and it is used throughout the New Testament in the general positive sense of to teach someone something. But the Greek word for exercise authority over is the word authenteo, and it is more complex. And it can mean to govern or have authority over in some way, in a positive sense, Or it can also mean to rise up and usurp someone's authority in a negative way. And this distinction is really important in what we understand this verse to be saying. Because if Paul is addressing the problem of women who were inappropriately trying to usurp or gain authority that hadn't been assigned to them, then he isn't speaking to the broader issue of whether women can be an authority in the church over a man at all. So here's where the battle rages as each side tries to make their case as to what this verse addresses. And so I'll spare you the extensive details of the grammatical debate and just give you kind of where we would feel the weight of the evidence seems to lie. So the grammatical studies would seem to conclude this. When two words like this are used together grammatically the way they are in verse 12, they must both be either positive or negative 
in force. In other words, they must both be either positive in their focus and meaning or both be negative in their focus and meaning. In other words, if teach is positive, if to teach means to teach in a positive way, uh, simply to teach someone something, then exercise authority can't be negative like it would have to be if the meaning was to usurp or grasp authority wrongly. They, they can't contradict their force grammatically. And so since the evidence that teaches a positive word in this context is pretty strong, then it would imply that to exercise authority over means to govern or have authority over in its positive sense as well. The second thing, and I've just summarized, you know, thousands and thousands of pages <laughs> of grammatical arguments for you. Uh, but the second thing about these two words that is relevant is this. Their grammatical form would indicate that while teaching and exercising authority over are two separate things in this verse, they are closely linked together. And so what do we conclude from this? So here's what Paul seems to be saying in this verse. He doesn't permit a woman to be in authority over a man in the authority structure of the church when it is assembled. And he doesn't permit a woman to teach in a role that is the responsibility of that authority. And while this issue is relevant to the church at Ephesus, remember that little phrase, in every place? These are universally applicable principles that he is applying to churches in general. So, since the only authority structure given to the church in the New Testament is the office of elder, pastor elder, then we would understand this passage as limiting a woman from being able to serve as a pastor elder in the church or doing the primary authoritative teaching that is the responsibility of the eldership to do. And, you know, it's not inconsequential that immediately following these verses, Paul lays out the qualifications for pastor elders. And those qualifications, if we were to read through them, are clearly framed with the assumption that men are to serve in that role. The husband of one wife is one of them. They're to manage their households well. These are masculine kind of uh, pronouns used there. And the other thing that they have to be able to do is they need to be able to teach. So we see those qualifications reflecting both of these kind of requirements in this verse. But there's one more question we need to address. Is this prohibition simply a cultural issue? Was it simply an expression of the culture of that day in a male-dominated society? Because remember, in verses 18 through 10, there were clearly some cultural expressions of how biblical principles were being lived out. And so is that what's going on in this 
prohibition. And because there are cultural expressions in churches all the time. There are cultural expressions in the church in our day. Whether you sing hymns or contemporary songs, whether you have a band up here or an organ up here, how you dress when you come to church are all cultural expressions of how we seek to live out the biblical principles in God's truth. And so is this prohibition just another example of an outdated cultural practice that needs to be ignored in our day? Well, I think the answer to this question is found in verse 13. And let's look at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul doesn't appeal to the culture of the day to validate what he says in verse 12. Instead, he appeals to the creation order and God's design in Genesis. And God's creation order and design in Genesis is transcendent over culture. It it supersedes all cultural issues. And so Paul sees this, his justification, his validation for these instructions, he sees as another expression of the leadership submission dynamic that is rooted to some degree in God's creation design. And so verses 14 and 15 close out his argument on this issue. And here's what he says in those verses. It says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, let me just say this. These two verses, they are particularly challenging to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. And there's no way that I have the time today to dig into all the diversity of opinions about exactly what is being said in these verses. So let me just make a couple of of kind of broad scope comments on them. Number one is, in a sense, verses 14 and 15, they're really not critical to the understanding of what Paul is saying in verse 12. Because verse 13 clearly ties his argument to God's creation design. So in these two verses, 14 and 15, he seems to flesh out the Genesis narrative a bit in support of the point that he's making. And so without getting into all the weeds of the details of the diversity of opinions on exactly what these verses mean, I think the general sense in verse 14 seems to be Paul using the fall as an example of how things can go wrong when proper roles of headship and submission are not followed. And this, it, this you can read this, and, and it seems like he's really kind of singling Eve out here, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's pointing the finger at Eve as the problem. I think he's communicating that both parties are equally guilty in their failures to live out their respective roles in that situation. In other words, Eve, when she was listening to the serpent tell her what she should do in disobeying God, rather than acting independently from her husband and listening and doing it, she should have gone to Adam and said, Hey, Adam, what do you think about this? And she didn't do that. And so as a result, she was deceived. 
But Adam not only was just as guilty because he willfully stood by and watched her do this and then willfully disobeyed knowingly that he was doing it. And did so he didn't exercise his male headship role of caring for and leading his wife well in this situation. So there is a mutual failure here that I think Paul's saying, here's what happens when this doesn't when, when these kind of roles are not kind of lived out in the way God intended, here's what can go wrong. And verse 15 is really even more difficult to understand, to be honest. And generally, it seems Paul is making the point that women are rescued from the consequences of the fall by faith and trust in Christ that leads to their living out their unique role as a woman as God intended. And he uses childbirth as one of the unique aspects of that role that God has designed for them to fulfill. And that's probably all I want to say about those because getting more specific would take a lot of time. So here's kind of the summary. We would conclude as a pastoral team, that the only limitations on a woman's role in the church that we see in Scripture are, one, that she cannot serve as a pastor elder, and two, that she not be given the role of the authoritative teaching of the church that is the responsibility of the eldership. So with that kind of doctrinal review, if you will, let me talk briefly about some of the practical applications of this in church life and ministry here at Grace. So first of all, our, our basic complementarian position on these matters has really not changed over the history of this church. We've always affirmed that the role of pastor or elder and the responsibility for the authoritative teaching in the church was reserved for men. That's always been the case. But to be honest, that left a lot of gray areas in practical ministry life of the church. How exactly do we understand and apply what exercising authority over a man means? Is it any leadership role in the church or only certain ones? What, where do you draw lines on what the authoritative teaching of the church is? Is it just the Sunday preaching, or is it any doctrinal or teaching of the Bible? And so there's, there's just all these gray areas that, uh, need that you know, really need to be sorted through. And to be honest, because up until a couple of years ago, that we had not really taken the time to study this out more thoroughly, I think we tended to lean towards being more cautious and a bit more conservative in how we applied these principles here at Grace. So in other words, if there's a question about whether it's okay to do something, it's safer to say, well, maybe we won't because that way at least we know we're not violating something. Where if we say yes, then maybe we're, maybe we're crossing a line that we shouldn't cross. And so I think there's a tendency that we've kind of leaned towards the conservative, cautious side in how we've applied some of these things here at Grace over the years. And also, to be honest, our roots probably as a church years and years ago were much more on the more conservative side in these areas than I think how we've evolved our understanding over time. And so really, one of the 
One of our goals in this process of really studying this out as a pastoral team and digging into these issues was to seek to bring some clarity to those gray areas. So that as a team, we could come to some consensus around how these principles would be applied here at Grace. And we've tried to really summarize our position on this issue and the practical outworking of that in the ministry life here at Grace in a more extensive position paper that will be available today. Uh, there will be copies out at the information center that you can pick up. All members and regular attenders, I think, will be emailed this sometime this week. Uh, and that is a, just a much more detailed kind of summary of some of what I'm sharing today. But let me touch on a few things that speak to practical application in this church. So leadership, let me start there. Other than pastor, elder, there would only be one other leadership role in the church that we would currently reserve for men, and that would be the role of what we call worship director. And the worship director, and just to explain what that is, the person that oversees kind of all of the worship ministry. And the reason why we would feel we, we might reserve that for men is because that role has a significant theological focus in directing and planning the content and direction of worship here at Grace, which is a significant part of our Sunday gatherings. And so we would currently feel like that's a role we would probably reserve for a man because of the theological dimensions of it. But the worship director is not the same as the Sunday worship leader. So the Sunday worship leader is the person who leads here on a Sunday, like Mark did today. And that's a role that we feel could be done by either a male or female. Uh, we don't see it as an authoritative role in the church. It's not doing authoritative teaching. And so both men and women could serve as Sunday worship leaders. Uh, also, women can lead ministries here at Grace that oversee both men and women. Um, actually, we're probably doing pretty well in this already, to be honest, because when I think about the major ministries of the church here at Grace, most of them are probably led by women now. Because our Grace Kids ministry is led by a woman. Our ESL ministry is led by a woman. Our administrative and office area is led by a woman. Um, we've got women as deacons. Our financial board up until a year ago or so ago when there was a leadership transition there was led by a woman as well. So I think we've already kind of seen women take a very active role in ministry leadership here at Grace. And the last thing I'd say about that is women can also supervise men in any non-elder staff position on our staff. Um, and just a couple of points on small group leadership, because we talked a lot about small groups. <clears throat> so here's some, some things I would say. Well, number one, single gender groups would generally be led by someone of the same gender. In other words, men's groups would be led by a man, women's groups led by a woman. But for mixed gender groups, and men, most of our small groups, our community groups, would be mixed gender groups, our preference would be that they be co-led by both men and women where possible. And when I say co-led, I don't mean the man leading and the woman just kind of supporting him as he does that. I really mean co-led, where men and women together lead as co-leaders, co-disciplers, each of them using their gifts and their abilities to contribute to the leadership of that group. 
And there may be occasions when a mixed gender group would be led by a woman if the elders would feel that it doesn't violate the biblical guidelines we've laid out. Um, and then mixed gender Bible studies, I think we feel they could also be led by a woman, and that depending on the role of the leader and the elders' oversight of the curriculum. So those are just a couple practical thoughts on leadership. Now, teaching. We would view the primary authoritative teaching of the church as taking place on Sundays, right here, doing the kind of thing that I'm doing now. And so we would reserve the Sunday pulpit for pastors and other men we would deem qualified to teach. And women are encouraged to participate in our Sunday services by sharing prophetic impressions, scriptures, words of encouragement or exhortation, prayer, testimonies, all the other ways that there can be contributions made to our Sunday service. And women can teach in mixed groups at conferences or retreats under the oversight of the pastors. Women can also teach in other mixed group contexts in the church under the oversight of the pastors, as long as it doesn't involve teaching that would fall under the responsibility or authority of the eldership to do. In other words, what I'm doing today in laying out this doctrinal position would be something that if we were doing this at a church retreat, we would want a pastor to do that. Um, and so that would be one example of whether might be rest a restriction. So again, uh, please read through the position paper for more detail on these things. And if you have questions, and I'm sure some do, uh, you know, we're going to do a panel right after the service today on, on these issues of women's roles. So you can text your questions into the panel. Or please feel free to talk to one of the pastors uh, if you have questions. And let me just say a couple things. Admittedly, there is some ambiguity and subjectivity in how we or other churches would apply these principles in church life. And while we probably haven't eliminated all the gray areas in applying these things that will come up, hopefully we've reduced them significantly and brought some clarity in how we see this being lived out at Grace. And we understand that some may have different views or thoughts on these things. Uh, we, we get it. This is, this is an issue where there's much disagreement on, even within the church. But this is our best attempt to be as biblically sound as we can be in looking at these topics. And we also understand that different individuals may have different convictions and how their conscience may or may not be comfortable in some of these applications. Some people may have different convictions about what they're comfortable with. And we would just want to say that we would want to honor those convictions and not ask anyone to do anything that they were uncomfortable with. So if I could have the band come and join me on stage. So here's the bottom line. We would believe that men and women are equal but complementary partners in our life and mission as a church. That we are brothers and sisters working together to fulfill God's kingdom purposes here at Grace. And our desire as a pastoral team is to see women thrive in the life and ministry of this church. 
and that they would fully utilize the gifts and abilities God has given them to fulfill their purpose and call in God's family. And that would include the gifts of teaching and leadership. Because really, it's only as men and women serve and work together in all the ways that God has gifted them and called them to do so that this body picture that we see in Scripture that describes the church becomes a reality. Whether male or female, each part of that body has a role and a contribution that no one else can make. And each person's role and contribution is equally valuable. And so Paul tells us in that section in 1 Corinthians 12 where he talks about this body, the church, that it only functions in a healthy, fruitful way when each person plays the role God has designed them to play. And so God is calling both men and women to step out in faith, to join him in his kingdom purposes that he is working in and through this church. And it's only as we join together both men and women to do that can this church become the church that God wants it to be? And without the vital contributions of women and all the various roles and ways that they help build and grow this church, that just won't happen in the fullness of all that it can be. And so let's close by standing and singing this, O Church Arise, and just call for all of us to join together, men and women, and just so that God can work all that he wants to do through this local church to fulfill this gospel mission and his kingdom purpose.